Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You see all this stuff in the culture about how you've got to learn to say no. And I quote Elizabeth Gilbert in the book, making the point that like, we just instinctively assume that what that means is saying no to all the stuff we don't want to do so that there's enough time for everything that matters. Mm. And she says, no, no, it's much harder than that. You've got to say no to lots of things that do matter, that you do want to do. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. In this episode, I talked to best-selling author Oliver Brickman about his latest book, 4,000 Weeks. On the surface, it's easy to mistake this book for another self-help book on time management. But this book is very different. Instead of enthusing about productivity hacks and making sure that we're superhumans, Oliver challenges his readers to confront the finite nature of humanity. By doing so, he argues, we can live fuller lives, without having to always carry the fear of missing out. We also touch on the topics of procrastination, positive psychology, flow, realism, deep time, and patience. This was a really, really stimulating episode, and I hope it helps you in this new year live a very good life. So now without further ado, I give you Oliver Berkman. I'm definitely a fan of yours now. That's very kind of you to say. (laughs) <laughs> what um, a great book. So how's your own time management coming along this year so far? <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's been a challenge, right? Because I, you, you write this book about things you've learned about time and how to use it. And then it does, um, it's kind of done better than I expected. And so now like I've got more emails to answer and more <laughs> potential opportunities to pursue and all these kind of all the, all the issues I thought I'd got handled, you know, uh, a sort of, uh, you know, kick into a different, a different degree. But. So, I mean, but you call that the efficiency trap, right? Don't you have like a fancy name for that exact phenomenon? That, is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's funny. I haven't really thought of that. What's happened in my life in the last few months as the efficiency trap, but I guess it is, could be, I mean, I just use that as an umbrella term for all these different ways in which getting better at processing your stuff attracts more and more inputs into the system. So you don't actually get through your, your stuff. I think in a lot of contexts, it also attracts sort of lower quality inputs. So you, if you think you can do it all, you end up with even more to do and with less and, and less of it is what you want to be doing. I think what, what I'm experiencing in these last few months is not quite that because, you know, put this thing out into the world and it's resonated with some people. And so that's why my system has more inputs at the moment. It's not because I got any better at handling my email. I have had the experience 
of getting really good at handling email and being punished for it with with more email. That's that's certainly happened in the past. Yeah, I mean, we get punished. <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. The more that we help someone, then they they say, "Wow, that person's available to help me." So then they, you know, they come back to you faster. You're right. You can certainly put out the feelers of like, "I'm unavailable and I'm not here." for anything and certainly people will ignore you and that is true but is that a life worth living so i think that you know it's it's interesting question at what point are you like okay that's enough for my life you know like this certain particular threshold you know of of helping others because i think people can get really obsessed with an obsessive uh, in a sort of compulsive way of like i have to help everyone or else my life is worthless yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be so different for different people. And obviously, there's also going to be a whole lot of people, everyone to some extent, I think, who has any kind of a job. You know, there are all sorts of emails that you can't fail to answer and and people whose bidding you can't mm-hmm. fail to do just because you've decided you're going to say no to things and, and set boundaries. I think the really important part of this aspect of it all is is like, it's seeing what's going on. So it's seeing that And it's sort of seeing through that delusion that you could ever get on top of it all and handle it all is is the important part. Yeah, You may then still have to answer more emails than you would like if you want to keep working in the job that you want to keep working in. You may still have to, you know, attend to various family obligations that feel like an important part of life, even though you might choose to have someone else handle them. But you're no longer going to be thinking that if I can only get a handle on this with the right productivity systems and enough self-discipline, then then I'm never going to have to make any tough choices between these things. But yeah, obviously it's a it's a privileged position to be able, I don't think I'm in it, I think probably very few people are in it, you know, to be able to literally say, uh, I'm just going to sort of answer precisely as many emails as I feel that I want to answer. Um, right. Like set a cap. Right. Like I'm I'm done. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back here for a second. So you wrote this amazing, amazing book on time management. And I think it's amazing because it seems to have come out of uh, left field, right? So you see all these kind of books on um, productivity and time management that are so much about kind of make your life more efficient, how to, in a, in a way, how to be superhuman. Mm-hmm. And your book really is a book for mortals. It's a really, not just for mortals, but it's a book about, uh, you know, being human and in hmm. coming to terms with that and and facing reality as head on as humanly as humanly possible literally right is that a fair summary yeah absolutely i mean i think it's about um yeah my argument my hunch that i'm following through this book is that you know three parts we are very very limited and finite in our amount of time and our control over it we put a lot of effort into avoiding the confrontation with that fact and actually we'd be happier and more productive and have more peace of mind if we if we confronted it a little bit more yeah um, you know when i said your book came out of left field i meant that as a as a compliment in the sense that it's very refreshing it's very refreshing in a space where you constantly feel like you're something's wrong with your life if you're not keeping up with the joneses <laughs> if you're not constantly Doing all the biohacking, you know, sort of latest things, you feel like you're kind of wasting your life in some way. Yeah, no, and I and I and I took it as a compliment. I think there is a sort of, I mean, I don't want to big myself up too much, but I think there is a kind of a subversive aspect to thinking in this way because we, you know, I think our human nature pushes us to want to kind of be superhuman so that we don't have to face what it is to be human. Our economic system takes advantage of this desire and sort of wants us to keep on, keep on being dissatisfied, going for more, you know, never, never considering that what we do is enough. And then, you know, all sorts of other cultural forces, they're all pushing in this direction of, you know, if you just keep going and you just push a bit more, then you can do more and you can get more done. And like, that would be fine if it worked. I don't have any problem with and, you know, sometimes people misunderstand what I'm saying here as some sort of case against being ambitious or something. But but my argument is that things like being really ambitious work a lot better if they're done in, in contact with the reality of our situation as finite humans. Because part of one of the big consequences of not acknowledging your finitude, I think, is that you end up spending your whole life 
trying to clear away all the little stuff and, t- and never ca- never getting around to the things that you were ambitious yeah. about to begin with. It, well, there's a lot of very nuanced, interesting art- arguments in your book. It's not it's not just that we never get around to it someday. It's that subconsciously, you kind of insinuate that subconsciously we're subverting ourselves. We're there. There's something. There's there's a topic in psychology, handicapping. You know, where sometimes we actively don't do the things that are most meaningful to us because we're afraid. Well, we'll never do them. So we, it's too much to bear that thought. You know, and so I'm wondering if you have you connected some of your ideas to the idea of handicapping in social psychology. That particular phrasing of it is new to me. I'll admit. I mean, what I think of it as relating to in psychology, and I don't know what your take on all of this is, but is is sort of psychodynamic psychotherapy, and frankly, Freud. I mean, you know, putting aside all the myriad ways in which the specific claims have been debunked. That basic idea that we invest a lot of energy in building lives and and psychologies around the avoidance of certain feelings that we think are going to kill us if we f- have to feel them. I think that's deeply true, no matter what you're about to tell me. The the, the sort yeah. of the research says, and, and that's really what I'm. I think I'm. That's a big affinity with what I'm saying, right? Which is like. Um, I think we, and certainly me, historically, we invest a lot of effort in trying not to face the consequences of being finite, the fact that we have to make tough choices about time, the fact that we don't ever really know what's going to happen in the very next moment and can't really plan our lives in the way that we'd, we'd wish. We really want to not feel that. And I think a heck of a lot of productivity techniques and systems and self-help advice is actually just kind of enabling that avoidance it's sort of helping us not feel it and but that the way you describe it in the in terms of handicapping feels very similar right it's like if i'm if i'm understanding you correctly it, it's a it is another phenomenon of being motivated primarily by not wanting to think about or feel certain certain ideas yes yes another element of handicapping is well you don't it's an excuse. You want to have an excuse if you fail, right? right? So if you fail, you, you want the excuse to be some external excuse. You don't want to be that you're not talented and that you couldn't have done it to begin with. So yeah. you handicap yourself a little bit so that you have a little bit like, you're like, well, I was drunk last night. So I, well, the truth remains you could have maybe done it if you weren't drunk last night. But we <laughs> do these things in our lives because it's like too hard to face the the reality of the matter if we do fail that it might be yeah. us that's at yeah. fault our talent yeah. yeah no totally and it's like yeah the the stakes are high and we'd rather do things where the stakes are low and I think you know an even more familiar version of that is just standard issue procrastination in the short term it it feels better to think one day I'm going to write a novel and it's going to be brilliant than it feels to write a couple of pages of your novel and for it to not know whether it's brilliant or for it not to be brilliant yet or to discover that it's not brilliant at all. Yeah. 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 Sometimes some people will go their whole lives just, it's, it's just good enough just fantasizing about having all the accolades, you know, and having yeah. the, you know, it's a, you, know, you almost don't want to know if you really could or not. Right. <laughs> you, no, absolutely. That's a big risk. That's yeah. a big risk. Yeah. I totally feel, I mean, I can detect that even in myself today, I think in certain domains, you know, where you're sort of like, there are a whole kind of, I don't know, certain kinds of fitness or versions of meditation, things like this that I sort of feel would probably be really good for me and that I'd get a lot out of, but I'm, but I'm not going to, yeah, it, it's, it's more comfortable to think about, the idea that one day I'll be the kind of person who makes that a central part of my life rather than doing it for half an hour today. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, you talk about procrastination as you offer advice to people on how to be a better procrastinator. You say, quote, so the point isn't to eradicate procrastination, but to choose more wisely what you're going to procrastinate on in order to focus on what matters most. The real measure of any time management technique is whether or not it helps you neglect the right things. I think this gets to a certain core of your argument, right? That, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, again, I'm just, that's a sort of the idea of becoming a better procrastinator is slightly sort of frivolous way of of putting it, but I'm trying to... Cheeky, cheeky. 
Okay, cheeky. <laughs> but I'm trying to target. You're British. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to target this um, this fantasy that I think is going on uh, mm. most of the time when people think about these issues, which is that you might be able to get to the position, the point in life where you were not neglecting anything important. And as I sort of slightly relentlessly try to drive home, there's just no reason to believe you'll ever get there because we are finite. The number of things that can feel important and feel as though they matter is effectively infinite. There are reasons to believe that technology and changing culture is making that, making the number feel even, even larger. And so this notion that the key is to figure out how to get everything done that matters is like that sort of, that ship has sailed just the moment you're born, basically. And instead, if you can acknowledge that at any given moment and with any given year or month of your life or season, you know, you're going to be neglecting countless things that would be a very legitimate use for that time, then you see, oh, okay, right. So the my job here is to make the wisest decisions about what to neglect, what to focus on, and to sort of learn to lean in a little bit to that discomfort of knowing that there are lots of things you could be doing that would count and don't and you're not going to have time for i mean stop me if this is all obvious at this point but they i think it's particularly interesting you know you see all this stuff in the culture about how you got to learn to say no and i quote elizabeth gilbert in the in the book making the point that like we just instinctively assume that what that means is saying no to all the stuff we don't want to do so that there's enough time for everything that matters. Mm. And she says, no, no, it's much harder than that. You've got to say no to lots of things that do matter, that you do want to do, and that do count, just because that's our situation. You know, There are always going to be more worthwhile and meaningful things that you could do than that you will do. Oh, humans are so messy. Our motivational structure, uh, it fluctuates. Yeah, there's so many complications when we talk about humans. And in, in, in theory, I love exactly what you're saying, right? But in practice, one's highest priority motivation can change based on one's mood, can change based on it's hard to understand sometimes which things are going to bear the greatest fruit. You know, totally. and, and how do you predict that ahead of time? But, you know, with all that said, I, I love this idea of, in a, essence, you're saying to live life to the fullest, it requires settling on something that you're at, at in the moment. Yeah, yeah, You make a really good point. I do get occasionally get asked, like, so what's the algorithm? You know, what's the, what's the, right. hack, hack your way. <laughs> like, what's the way to decide which priority matters the most and then stick to it? And I, I always, shy away a bit from that because I think again this is really about spending more of your life in the state of being conscious of how of what the situation is it's not a, you're absolutely right you know you're not I'm not suggesting that people are going to use this figure out their number one goal and then pursue it every single day for the rest of their lives it's just it's it's more about living with that awareness of inevitable sacrifice and of inevitable, that you'll inevitably fall short of, of ideals that are not consistent with being a limited human being in terms of how much you do and how, how many things you do. It's almost like living in a state of being disillusioned in a, in a positive sense, right? It's like that you're sort of, the more that you're in that mind space, the less likely you are to go down rabbit holes of trying to, I don't know, more to, to I don't know, empty your inbox completely before you turn to some important project or um, wait until some milestone in your life has happened before you get stuck into the, to the ambition that you know is the central one in your life. It's, it's just about sort of living with that. Yeah. It's like, it's a tragic sensibility, I guess. Right. It's just living with an awareness of the, um, of the mismatch that we're all born into between our ability to conceive of infinite things and only do a finite number of them. Yeah, when you, you talk. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm going to be quoting you a lot today. Uh, you say, "So when you pay attention to something you don't especially value, it's not an exaggeration to say that you're paying with your life." Holy cow! <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> when I when I'm eating that pizza, every now and then, can I be like, "I want to pay with my life this juicy pizza I'm eating right now." Is that okay? Every now and then, I give you permission, and. Which you definitely needed from me, right? Before you could eat a pizza. Yeah. Um, no, the 
again, I think, you know, firstly, just the caveat, I don't claim perfection in any of these, of these um, approaches to life myself, but it's mm. deeper than that. It, it's that. It's that if you know that this is the way the situation is, and you know that you will fail to perfectly respond to that situation, I mean, it's just a, it's ultimately just a richer way of, of living. It's hard to, it's hard to put into words in this context I'm finding, but like, um, the pizza is an odd example because I would have thought a, a really good pizza could absolutely be by anybody's standards, a fully legitimate way to spend, to focus your attention for a while. Cause like really good pizza is really good. Uh, a more challenging question to me, I would have thought would be like, are you saying I can never veg out in front of a TV show that I don't particularly love just cause I want to relax and like use an hour of my time on something that wasn't kind of consistent mm. with my highest intentions. And even there I would say, you know, no, I'm, I'm not saying anything of the sort. I'm saying like, let's, let's coax ourselves to be more aware more of the time that in spending that hour on that, you were inevitably choosing not to spend it on countless mm -hmm. other things. And if that kind of fairly relaxed kind of zoning out is truly the right thing for that moment, then, you know, fine. And if you're not capable, as none, and I don't think any of us are, of perfectly organizing your life for maximum meaning and value, then give yourself a break, but let's not fool ourselves that that's not what's happening when we, uh, that, that when we spend an hour on something, we're not foregoing all the other things. I yeah, think, I think, I think that deeply built in it to the human genome is the fear of missing out on those alternatives and what could be better, what could make us happier. We worry so much about that, that we don't focus on the beauty of what's in front of our eyes often. You have an interesting spin on this. You say, no, we should talk about the joy of missing out. The recognition that the renunciation of alternatives is what makes their choice a meaningful one in the first place. Talk a little bit more about the joy of missing out. Maybe we should be harnessing that, that more in our lives, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the funny thing about the fear of missing out is that that's a kind of stance that says, like, I'm really worried that I might miss out on some meaningful experiences or opportunities or whatever it is. And I'm at pains to say, well, if you look at the situation a bit more um, honestly, it, it's absolutely inevitable that you're going to miss out on huge numbers of potentially meaningful opportunities and experiences. So it, it becomes a little strange to fear that that might happen when it's already happened and is definitely going to keep happening. And I find that a very liberating thought myself, right? I mean, if, if there's a possibility of not missing out, then it's really stress-inducing because I have to do everything I can to make sure that I don't. Whereas if you know that you're going to be missing out on almost everything the world has to offer and you're going to not meet almost all the people you could in principle meet, this is incredibly liberating. Firstly, because it sort of, it, it lets you off the hook. You, you don't have to be sort of constantly struggling to pack more in just for the, just for the sake of it. And then secondly, yeah, I think it, it imbues the choices that you do make with more value. I think that if I take sort of a couple of hours on an afternoon to go on a hike, say, if I'm kidding myself that I have all the time in the world and that that is no sacrifice and that nothing is, that nothing is, is um, lost or no opportunities are, uh, are foregone by doing it, it's kind of like the stakes, the stakes aren't high enough for it to be, for it to matter. It feels like it, the stakes aren't high enough. If you see the truth of the situation, which is that, you know, in those two hours, you could have done lots of other meaningful things, but you chose to do this one. It's kind of like an affirmation of that choice. It's like, okay, the stakes are really high. I could be doing other things that really count. And I'm doing this one because I've chosen to do it. I think it, I think it does sort of plunge you, to speak a bit vaguely, I think it does sort of plunge you more engrossingly into the experience to have some awareness of that. Yeah, this, this dovetails, uh, this will segue nicely into this idea of deep time and uh, topic that I've never actually heard the, the, the phrase deep time before, but in my field of positive psychology, it's called flow. And uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who passed away recently, spearheaded a lot of that work, uh, as well as the humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow talked about peak experiences and the kind of common thing about all these, whether you call it peak experiences or flow, is that you become so locked into the moment, so absorbed that your almost your sense of time changes, and things feel a little bit slowed down, and you're not 
your, your full consciousness is, is on the task mm-hmm. at hand or the activity so that you're not thinking about what could be better, you know? And um, so those thoughts are not even in your head in these kinds of experiences. So, you know, how can we harness more of this deep time in our, in our, in our lives? And do you have any ideas on practically how people can do that? I mean, this question of making these insights practical in this area and others is the, it's the really big, fascinating one. And I'm still thinking a lot about it because I do think that, I do think that the sort of greatest contribution that I hope my book can make is, is in inducing a kind of a perspective shift. So Mm. I think if, I think if I communicate the thing that I'm trying to communicate, it enables you to see that the, that the sort of clock time mindset that we spend most of our life in, I think, uh, enables you to see that it's not the only option and something can sort of fall away. Something that you're a sort of a struggle that you're in a fight against time can sort of be relaxed. And then what I'm calling deep time follows kind of arises naturally. It's almost as if it's the natural state behind the the clock time that we impose upon it. And the parallel to flow is fascinating because I do know a little bit about Csikszentmihalyi's work and others on that kind of stuff. And I've never quite, I, I don't quite see if I'm talking about exactly the same thing or not. And when I read sort of self-helpy people talking about how to get into flow, I know he wasn't a big sort of self-helpy person as I understand it, but like when I see people taking that idea and running with it, they have all these very proactive methodologies, right? So sure, absolutely. Spend three minutes at the beginning of a work period meditating on your breath. Sure. Adopt certain rituals that you'll come to associate with, with being focused. All great stuff. Shut out interruptions. I think that's all absolutely beneficial. And I do some of them myself, but I do think that at the most profound level, the thing I'm trying to point to with this idea of deep time, it is just sort of something that arises once you've, once you've seen through certain things about illusions clock time. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm constantly like, I would really like to be able to say, you know, here's the technique. And there are some, you know, the book has a bunch of stuff in the, especially in the back that is meant to be much more sort of tactical, but I sort of stumble a little bit because I do think that the most important thing is, is like getting what we're talking about here. And so really the book is just an attempt to sort of offer people glimpses of this in like a hundred different ways. And maybe one or two of them will be the ones that, that um, do it for a given reader. I slightly avoided your question. No, no. I Look, I totally understand what you're saying. And uh, your book is on the one hand about, or on the surface about time management. But to me, someone who's deeply interested in the science of human potential and living a good life, it's really about a book. It's really a book about uh, what it means to live a good life, what it means to live a meaningful life. Your book could easily have been that could have been the framing of it, not time management, you know? And But time management is so bound up with that, and you can see it so clearly. Time management is so bound up with the meaning and the happiness and joy that you have in your in your life. How would you link this book with your prior book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking? What a, By the way, what a great subtitle <laughs> that is. How do you link the two things? Because in a way, both books are about, right, the life, uh, about the well-being and yeah no absolutely life. yeah no totally and i think there's probably something more thematically consistent between them than that although it's one of those things you only ever see in the rearview mirror right i mean mm-hmm. all i thought i was doing when i wrote the antidote was trying to sort of sum up my life philosophy in the most engaging and useful way possible and it's kind of all i was doing in this book as well and they that's mm-hmm. changed to some extent and to, but in lots of ways i think there's a sort of a a through line that book is about happiness and the problems with positive thinking and the problems with trying to sort of will your way into happiness and success. And this book is about thinking about how to use time. But I think the, the common thread is, yeah, the the common thread is this kind of openness to negative experience and the sort of necessity of being willing to sort of befriend the the feelings of insecurity or discomfort that sort of come with with being human and i think that positive thinking is one way of uh, in its worst forms you know is one of one way of trying in a very strenuous way to sort of get outside of 
life somehow to get um to get outside of or on top of reality so that you're in this kind of emotionally safe place where everything is is good all the time and that this doesn't work that actually it's far more meaningful and even happy in life eventually to be able to in the end to be able to um encompass all the the downs as well as the ups that there's something sort of there's something inauthentic and about striving for the time when everything is cheerful all the time so in both cases i think i guess i'm talking about a certain kind of pessimism or yeah like a almost like a tragic out, outlook to put it a bit pretentiously that that is about it's about accepting a certain kind of defeat as being the precondition of a life well lived i think and that defeat is the the sort of to let go of this fantasy of perfect happiness perfect efficiency perfect whatever else it might be yeah i mean and the other thing of course which we could totally go into is they're all just different ways of me doing doing my therapy in public these are the one of <laughs> my books about productivity and time management as you pointed out didn't need to be necessarily is because that's been my that's been my struggle <laughs> and uh you know i think writing from a writing from a particular point of view is usually the best way to say something more universally worthwhile well everyone does it Oliver. we you know you're not the only one who uh, writes a book just to heal themselves we all do it in disguise um you're just not disguising it you're honest about it well this is this is my question for you because i'm thinking about the thread that runs through both those books to me i would have said it's realism it's about confronting the truth head on, the truth about your life, the truth about your limited time on earth, and the truth about about how not everything is positive all the time. Right. That that's not necessarily embracing the negative. Like you frame you framed it as like, you know, being more open to the negative. I, to me, that's just being more realistic. But what if someone takes the point of view? What if someone, you know, how does your philosophy apply to like an Elon Musk kind of mentality or someone who wants to be godlike? I mean, they mm-hmm. want to be, you know, why? Like, who are you to say certain people can't be? <laughs> now, some people, some people have such broad ambitions that it that they probably would not fundamentally change the planet if they were too realistic. Do you know what I mean? I do, and I think about this. A lot, and I think it is it is the sort of Elon Musk cases that that obviously push the press the point the most at a slightly toned down level of ambition from from Elon Musk. I think I think it's pretty clear to me how these ideas are not only not inconsistent with being ambitious, but they're kind of they're an important part of being ambitious. And in some sense, I mean, you cannot do what Elon Musk has done unless you are in some deep sense in touch with rea- the reality of how things are right you can't you you can't build on at a certain point however much you're sort of motivated at, at a certain stage by by the refusal to believe that anything is impossible at a certain point you have to like figure out how this is going to be manifested in engineering and silicon chips and pieces of metal and uh on the one hand it's probably not quite right to say that elon musk's achievements are sort of the consequences of not being realistic i guess what it points to is a sort of double meaning in the idea of realism Mm. that we maybe are getting there's potential to get tripped up on which is like there's realism as in like okay don't aim for anything too impressive uh like let's be realistic in the sense that you might well hear a british person say it and i think in some ways this is a cultural a culture-bound thing and then there's just then there's just like the much more precise meaning of realism, which is to be in touch with the way things really are as much as you possibly can and not to be, have your vision clouded by comforting fantasies of how you wish they were. And that I think is surely completely compatible with the most vaulting ambition. And so often when I'm talking about how you get, uh, my book is about, helping you give up the quest to do impossible things and get stuck into doing what's sort of gloriously possible instead. There's one slightly Silicon Valley comeback to this, which is like, if people didn't dream of doing impossible things, how would anything exciting right. ever done that changes the world? And then I, then I have to make the most boring kind of objection, which is a semantic one and say, you know, I'm all for people trying to do the very, very nearly impossible. The, the mm-hmm. things that, and for, and for sort of, 
pushing through their artificially limiting beliefs in order to do more than they could ever have believed they were um, capable of. That's very different from the idea of doing things that are literally impossible, like, you know, answering an infinite amount of emails or, you know, dedicating your whole working life to two different things, because if you're dedicating it all to one of them, you can't be dedicating it to the other. I imagine that Elon Musk is pretty realistic about how many of the emails sent to him personally he has time to reply to. So I think it's all, you know, there's a there's an, a fine line to walk there because I don't think any of this is inconsistent with those occasional figures who sort of really change history. On the other hand, I think it's also great to not feel that your meaning in life is dependent on being one of those people and that you've somehow failed if you're not Elon Musk. That's clearly also an idea worth getting getting past. Yeah, yeah. You've uh, or you, what is the failure there that you feel like you failed as a human? You failed as I mean, you did fail in being Elon Musk. If you're not Elon Musk, that is technically true. You failed <laughs> at uh, creating a company that can potentially send us to Mars. You did actually fail in that. You know, there, there's <laughs> you're talking about you talk about realism and uh, and positive psychology sometimes, or you know, the over positivity sometimes they'll say things like "You are enough." You know, like you know, you listen to these meditations, right? I mean, yeah. you of all people, I feel like you know, would, would in certain instances want to be like, face the reality here. You're, you know, you know, like you're not enough yet. <laughs> in some, in some instances, in some instances. Yeah, it depends on, it depends on, um, it depends on enough for what, right? I mean, if somebody's listening That's to one of those. That's my question. Right. Yes. I mean, if somebody is listening to one of those meditations to help them feel that they're perfectly well qualified to, you know, perform open heart surgery when they haven't actually uh, exactly. studied the right uh, skills, then then that would be disastrous. But I'm, but in the existential sense, yeah, I mean, cheesy as they are, I think that message, as those, some of those meditations are, I think that message that like your existence on the planet is already justified, which has a lot of religious resonances and it's, and it's sort of closely connected to the, like the Christian idea of grace and all sorts of other things in different traditions. It's kind of, it's really important. And this is where we get to like openly me just talking about the therapy aspect of this book. Cause I think that for a long time in my life, productivity and making good use of time was very tightly bound up with self-worth, you know, and I think it's true for a lot of people. They feel if they don't, if you don't get through a certain amount of stuff by the end of the day, you haven't quite justified your right to be on the planet somehow. It's this kind of existential sense of not being enough. And I think it's tremendously empowering to consider instead that maybe you are enough. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you've done all you have to do to justify your existence in the, on the planet. And anything you do beyond that to earn a living or to make the world a better place. That's fantastic. But it's not like trying to pay off some existential debt. So the person who is not qualified to perform open heart surgery is is very much enough as a human being. They're just they're just not enough as a as a surgeon. Yeah. I'm imagining a, a comedy skit where <laughs> well I guess maybe tragedy comedy skit where someone is a terrible surgeon and they have sort of killed everyone in the ward and they feel terrible about themselves. So they put on a calm mat meditation that okay. says, just take a deep breath. You are enough. And then they're like, okay, I'm enough. I mean, it's okay. Right. And let, that puts me in mind of the fact that I think, you know, probably an awful lot of damage is done to the world in, in, in politics, in toxic parts of business, in all sorts of areas by people who don't feel adequate in that sort of deep mm. inner way and are using external power and you know being a jerk to to try to fill that hole so yeah a lot of overweening ambition is 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 yeah is is, is trying to get to there i think yeah for sure another major theme of your book is the importance of patience the import i mean a lot of it's zen zen philosophy uh is so also not just patience but being comfortable with with boredom you know, is is a big one, yeah. and you know, the, I, there's this fascinating study at Harvard where most people, when they're in a room alone and they couldn't do anything, they'd actually prefer an electric shock over just yeah. Day, yeah. daydreaming or mind wandering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a mind blowing finding, and then you think about it, and you're like, yeah, probably if the electric shock was mild, <laughs> yeah, no, of course, it'd be interesting. 
Because <laughs> at least it's something. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that patience, I think that the question of patience and impatience is just another way into this question of, you know, the degree to which we want to be superhuman. We want to make the world go at the pace we need it to go, which is, you know, instantaneous. And all sorts of technological developments, you know, convince us that we're almost there, you know, that, that, uh, that, that we're very close to being able to do everything at, uh, in an instantaneous way, which is why, as I argue in the book, that, you know, it's far more frustrating to wait for a microwave than it is to wait for a conventional oven because the microwave sort of encourages you to believe that it ought to be possible to have your food instantaneously. And so it's much more frustrating to have to wait two minutes for it. If people never expected that in the first place, they wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't be so impatient. So yeah, I think it becomes very a very important skill in the modern accelerated world. You know, to be able to let things take the time they take, to be able to sort of not read a book without without trying to read it as fast as you possibly can, or to consume a work of art in that way, or or to be in a relationship without needing things to sort of without needing the day to flow at your own person, you know, preferred speed. And so, and it's hard, it's really hard and unpleasant and a constant challenge. And I haven't, you know, figured it out for myself, but, but it's, um, again, I, I'm just really attracted to that idea that there's something sort of subversive in being able to withstand that a bit instead of just jumping on board the, the acceleration train as it were. Absolutely. You know, uh, there's things, some things happen in their own time. That's an obvious statement I just said there, but um, there, there's a lot of deep uh, profundity around that idea when you really think about that. Roel May, the humanistic psychologist, wrote a great book called Love and Will about how uh, eros takes time to develop. Sex, you can have instantly. You know, lust, you can have instantly. And uh, we're kind of being pulled by the lust. But when we instead want to grow eros or grow love, that can only happen as an interaction between you and someone else that unfolds over time. When tensions get resolved, when you know um, you go through a relationship and you you know that you can fight and then you can make up and then you can grow yeah. from that. It, it, it's a process. It's not something you can biohack, right? Right, right. And you're reminding me also of. Um... Not everyone appreciates the book, but I, I basically do um, The Road Less Traveled, Scott Peck, um, mm. where he he talks about attention being the work of love. I think that's I think that's a phrase from from his writing. And there's like this wonderful passage about how like listening to the other person in a relationship takes effort and you do it more and more and like it just always keeps on taking effort and it never, it never actually gets easy because yeah. there's something about the, there's something about the putting in of effort that is, that is the value of the yeah. interaction. And, and yeah, yeah. That's where the meaning comes into play. Yeah. The effort, the commitment, commitment and meaning are so deeply, deeply intertwined, you know, like yeah. the second we, we commit ourselves to anything we are, in a sense, committing ourselves to meaning for that thing that we're going to find some meaning in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sacrificing some kind of comfort in so doing, because you're sort of voluntarily binding yourself to certain experiences and speeds of things unfolding that you might not then choose if you were, if you hadn't made the commitment in any given moment, but that you sort of, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Sorry, that didn't go anywhere, but it is fascinating. (laughs) We're riffing, we're riffing. For the remainder of this interview, let's uh, talk about some of the practical things you do talk about in your book. You have three principles of patience. You say the first is develop a taste for having problems. Can I go through all three and maybe you could uh, elaborate a little bit on each one? So the first one, develop a taste for having problems. What does that mean? I'm trying to target there this sense that I think a lot of people have, certainly I had for a long time, that the problems in your life, and there are always a whole bunch of them that you're trying to work out, uh, are sort of doubly problematic. Firstly, because you have the problem itself, but also there's some idea that you ought to, you take yourself to be en route to some time when you're not going to have any more problems. And in a different, 
uh, not in the book, but elsewhere, I've, I've quoted a talk that I heard Sam Harris give about this, where he was sort of remembering some moment when he was moaning to a friend about all the problems that he was experiencing in his, I think, work at that time or something. And she said, like, hold on, hold on. Do you think you're going to get to a time in your life when you don't have problems? It's like, and that's a really big realization. I think that that's really, that's really true. This idea that, that one day there's going to be the problem-free time is very um, seductive. And I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think you'd ever want it to happen. Certainly, you know, there are very grave problems that it would be, you know, it's nice not to have and that it would be nice to not have any more of. But the sheer fact of having sort of things that you need to address yourself to that are difficult or challenging and that feel like roadblocks to where you want to get I mean, to approach those in the spirit that you're one day going to get rid of them all is to sort of treat life as a problem in itself, right, I think. And and so there's something really powerful about letting go of of that. There's a, I think, can't remember if I put it in that, that point in the book, but there's a quote that I really cherish from the a French poet called Christian Bobin, who says, this is translated, obviously, by somebody else, I was peeling a red apple from the garden when it suddenly, when I suddenly realized that life would only ever give me a series of wonderfully insoluble problems to solve. At this moment, an ocean of profound peace entered my heart. I think that's the approximate quote. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is, this is life. The problems are life. My wife occasionally yes. tells me when I'm, when I'm really, when I'm whining about some aspect of my work, it's like, no, this is the job, solving these problems. Like that's the thing that you do. The idea that you've got to get rid of all those so that you can get down to the real the real stuff of life that's the illusion it's so beautiful it's it's so it's so true it's just so darn true <laughs> i i think there's a lot of people going to listen to this episode and 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 just they'll need to hear that you know like i needed to hear that when i was reading your book i was like wow this is life maybe that could have been the title of the book as well this <laughs> no 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 that is your life that right, is life right. yeah and i'm yeah. always you know occasionally encountering people who think that i must have internalize this epiphany once and for all and live in a perfect state of equanimity certainly not i think that i think that you know obviously this is stuff i need to remind myself of again and again all the time but it is always liberating and it's always a burden lifted from my shoulders when i when i do right yeah this there are problems to be solved but this the fact of having problems is not a problem to be solved if that if that yeah. makes sense more money more problems <laughs> the second principle is to embrace radical incrementalism. So what is radical incrementalism? I'm talking here about developing the willingness to make progress on your work, whatever it is, in, in very small, consistent amounts. There's obviously plenty of research about the importance of a sense of you know small victories and small wins in in keeping people motivated but i think there's this there's this impatient urge in a lot of people obviously depends on your sort of specific profession and things like that but there's this sort of urge to race ahead this idea that that accomplishment and progress is a matter of sort of binging your work of sprinting forwards and making like vast very very quick progress and and i'm sort of drawing here on lots of evidence from different places but i am focusing specifically on writing just because it's something i so personally familiar with that the exact opposite is true that actually the, the that sort of willingness to do a small amount do a small amount the next day be quite dogged in that in that way um this makes accomplishment sustainable over the long haul there's fascinating work by the psychologist Robert Boyce. I don't know if you've run into his stuff, who, who spent a lot of time studying the writing habits of academics and um, made this really interesting finding that actually the most productive academic writers were those who made writing a moderately important part of their daily lives instead of the ones who tried to make it a hugely important part of their daily lives. It's less intimidating. You can come back to it day after day. You can actually create that situation where you want to return to it day after day because you haven't sort of permitted yourself to do so much of it that you've grown sort of exhausted by it or or, um, or it feels like it sort of unpleasantly dominates your life and takes away from other things. 
The part of that that I'm always sort of really intrigued by and that has been so powerful for me is not just that you, and this is in my own writing practice, I guess, you know, not not just that you only ask of yourself an hour or two's deep writing focus in the course of a day, but that you make sure you stop at the end. And even if you're on a roll, you actually sort of flex that muscle of getting up and walking away. And it's really hard to do. But Boyce argued, and I think he was right, that um, that if you give in to that urge to just keep going and keep going, keep going, you're basically giving in to impatience, like this idea that you that you must get it done now, that you're never going to get another opportunity, that it's absolutely essential that you add another 2,000 words to the chapter or whatever it might be. And when you see that it's not essential, when you see that you can walk away, you can live with the discomfort of knowing that you could have carried on, but you didn't, that's actually what keeps you sort of in this like more tightly coiled place where you're willing to, you know, come back to it day after day after day. Does that resonate? And does it resonate with your own experiences? I'm interested. Or are you, are you a binge writer? I know some some really accomplished people are. Stephen Pinker, I think I've, I've heard him talk about how he totally disagrees with all these things and just like <laughs> writes for 15 hours a day for a few months and then stops for ages. So that's me. Oh, interesting. Well, if it <laughs> I, um, I work on inspiration. And when I'm uh, feeling inspired, I need to capture that juice that sauce, that energy, um, for as long as I can ride it, or because it may be days before I get it again, or even months. So that philosophy of radical incrementalism does not jive with my sort of mania. <laughs> but that's my own yeah. psychopathology. <laughs> I mean, I... It's really interesting to me because I do think that the sort of the deepest level of this, which is that things take the time they take and you need to give them that time, I think is universally true. Mm. And I'm sure that if I, we sort of dissected your writing habits, we'd see that emerging in some other form. But yeah, I think that the idea that the idea that uh, of of doing these sort of short, consistent amounts that's probably a corrective that is needed by people like yeah people whose tendency like me is to be sort of i don't know perfectionistic not necessarily in terms of the quality of the output but perfectionistic in an absolutist in this idea that i ought to be able to write for eight hours a day and then when i can't it becomes incredibly depressing you're talking as if it's a sheer pleasure maybe to write for eight hours a day when the when the juices are flowing and i That's don't right. necessarily want to be a person who tries to get in the way of that although i suppose if you really followed boyce robert boyce's ideas to their end and to be deliberately combative about it i would say is there any possibility that that you're talking as if inspiration is only there sometimes and you have to write it when it is there right but it would be tempting in a devil's advocate way to ask do you think that your riding of the inspiration as long as it'll go has some causal influence on the fact that it only shows up sporadically. And if you could force yourself to work in much shorter bursts, would you find that there was a sort of low hum of inspiration that was there all the time? Yeah. So I think that's a really, I'm just interested in sort of, it's a really good question. And I, maybe perhaps experiment more with that. I, well, I, I you have. have. You seem to produce the book. So like if it's working, I'm not sure I want to tell you to do something that might not work. So. Yeah. So, well, maybe individual differences do do play a role here, but I see the corrective that you're trying to make. And I think that's an excellent point. So we can focus on that. Okay. So the final principle is that more often than not, originality lies on the far side of unoriginality. That Mind blown. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> can you explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest way of putting, of unpacking that is just that in creative work, especially, but I think it probably applies in, in relationships and in a bunch of other domains, you often have to go through a period of things that feel derivative or not, you know, you being truly your unique self in order to get to the parts that, that, that are truly original and truly your unique self. Um, mm. 
I use this whole, uh, I lean on this whole story from the, about the Helsinki bus station theory that I can talk about here, although it takes more than 10 seconds. So you can, you can ask me to or not and edit it out or whatever. Um, but also it's be familiar to people. I think also in that there's a fairly famous little piece of writing or speaking from Ira Glass, the radio host and producer about how in the early stages of being a creative person in, I think he's talking about radio specifically, your taste sort of runs ahead of your capacities. So it feels like what you're producing is, is substandard because you, you have a vision of something that is very good and you're not yet able to, to create it. And so in a very sort of mundane way, I can look back on my training as a journalist and see that it was important to do a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't necessarily the most fulfilling writing imaginable in order to get to a place where I could. I think that it crops up in a different, interesting way in the sort of way in which there are so many sort of cultural messages pushing us at quite a young age to do very extraordinary things, right? To go to some different part of the world to live and work, to pursue sort of, I mean, things that are the opposite of like settle down, get married, have children, all these things that feel like they're they're sort of insufficiently unusual in some ways, I think, to a lot of people. And that maybe actually you have to fall into these conventional grooves sometimes in order to get to certain things like, you know, the fruits of a long-term intimate relationship or parenthood and deep roots in a location things like that so i guess that's 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 the that's the general point that i'm getting at there yeah there's a, a great paper one of my great one of my favorite uh, journal articles by a sociologist called the mundanity of excellence where he did a really deep analysis of olympic swimmers and their process leading up to their to their their greatness and he found that it's actually pretty mundane <laughs> i love i love that that um <laughs> I love yeah. that title. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's, it somehow seems relevant to your point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to kind of leave our interview today on making something very clear. You know, you you are about realism, but to me, it seems like there's a correlation, a positive correlation between the extent to which you have embraced this realism and the awe that you experience in the world. There seems to be a connection to awe and to wonder and to being able to pay attention to the wonder that exists in the world. Is that right? I'd, I'd like to leave on that, this note. Yeah, I think there is, there must be. I, I'm just trying to think my way around that, that idea. Cause you do talk, right. Cause you, in your book, you do talk about wonder and you talk about how a lot of time management techniques are, are taking us away from uh, yeah. being able to appreciate it. Yeah. The more unwise ways of trying to, manage our time or wring more and more activities out of the same amount of time and all the sort of unwise ways in which we relate to our time, they have this effect of sort of holding us back from full engagement with the reality that we're in. And so they are sort of awe killing in a way because they they put you at one remove from experience this attempt to be superhuman with respect to your time is kind of as i've said already you know it's an attempt to sort of get outside of life an attempt to sort of bring the world reality in all its kind of infinite wonder and uncontrollable variety and everything into a sort of something that you can get your hands around and, and organize the way you want it to be and if what I'm talking about here is letting go of that, is letting go of that fantasy in order to actually do some good, meaningful things in the world, but to be part of the world instead of trying to sort of wrangle the world, then I think that would be totally consistent with 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 awe, which is that sort of sense of your that sense of being part of something almost sort of terrifyingly bigger and and more unfathomable than oneself. And and not thinking that you have, not thinking that you have reality's number, right? That that it's all that it's all totally sort of manageable and can all be turned into your, to your lists and your task management system and your goals for the quarter or, or whatever. So yeah, I I intentionally wanted to get this interview done so we could have it in the new year. 
and so I'm excited to release this ASAP. How does this advice relate at all to people in their their uh, futile, seemingly futile New Year's Eve uh, resolutions, New Year's resolutions they make on New Year's Eve that um, don't seem to last more than a day? I mean, I do think this kind of, there is something about this point in the turning of the calendar that does feel very conducive to having some of these deep thoughts and reflections. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm pretty hostile to New Year's resolutions in there most cliched form but I do think this kind of period can be uh, there's something about it especially about that sort of week between Christmas and New Year I think that has passed now of course that is a great opportunity for reflecting on how these big issues how your life fits into how they how they fit into your life but I think yeah the, the big sort of negative problem with a with New Year's resolutions is this is this feeling of a fresh start this uh, this this idea that you can sort of wave goodbye to your old self and mm. everything can be completely different and implicitly perfect in some domain from now on and that is really you know a, a canonical example of the attempt to uh, mm. control more than you can control the attempt to sort of say that you know, from now on, one of the ways in which my time is going to be under my command is that three times a week I'm going to go to the gym with no with no breaks, it's going to be an unbroken streak and whatever it might be. And there is in that sort of inherently, isn't there, a kind of a, a refusal to accept the degree to which you don't control reality, the degree to which you're just totally shaped by everything that's brought you to where you are now. That's the other thing. It's like I saw somebody tweet this the other day, right, that all, your pla- all one's plans for self-improvement are sort of premised on the idea that tomorrow you're going to wake up with 20 times more self-discipline than you've ever demonstrated on any day of your entire life uh, yeah. so far. And that kind of thing, it's again, it's an attempt to sort of leap outside of, of the situation in which we're, we're all in. I think there are probably perfectly healthy ways to make New Year's resolutions, but there's a general sort of cultural feel at New Year, summed up in that terrible publishing industry phrase, New Year, New You, that that is unhelpful because it's sort of, it, it, it fuels this this idea of bending the whole of the world to our will and bending our own selves to our will, which is impossible enough. Well, I'm sure that'll be a lot of comfort to a lot of people. That, uh, <laughs> no, but it's like, true, right? Because it's like... It's yeah, yeah, I'm being serious. Whole, oh, no, I was being serious. I was being serious. It seems like... No, no, no. It's it, because it'll... It's like you're giving people permission that, like, you know, that you're... Uh, human <laughs> and in right. a lot of ways you're giving people self-compassion you know you're telling people to have a little more self-compassion as well like chris and neff talks about some ideas that i see are resonant with some of your ideas actually yeah. um, about uh, embracing our common humanity embracing our imperfections etc yeah and yeah, the, and yeah I, I totally totally and i just think that the, the spirit to go into new year with is something more like you know okay what if you didn't need to do it make any changes to your life in order to be an okay person and to have justified your existence here? What if no changes at all needed to be made? Okay, well then what changes would you make? Because it would be fun to, to do so. Yeah. Well, thank you, Oliver. I really appreciate you coming on my podcast today. I find your book such a breath of fresh air and uh, I'm glad we're finally able to, to make this work. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.